And let's pray together. Father, we ask that you continue to meet with us tonight as we continue to turn our heart and our mind toward you and worship now in the study of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us tonight from this beautiful word that will outlive the heavens and the earth. As Denison, the others have sung tonight, thank you for the privilege of being able to build our lives upon the rock of your Son and the rock of your truth. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Genesis chapter 34 tonight. As we journey through the Scriptures, and as you might remember if you were here last week, Jacob has made a very, very bad decision, uh, essentially to disobey the Lord and that he returned to the land of Canaan from Padan Aram, and uh, he was instructed by God, uh, Genesis chapter 31, verse 3, to return to the land of his fathers and to his family. And the Lord said, I will be with you. And his family was located in Hebron. God knew what a wicked place Canaan was in those days, and uh, knew that where Jacob was in his spiritual relationship with the Lord and where his family was in their spiritual relationship with the Lord, which was not terribly spiritual, that they needed the godly influence of this family that likewise worshipped the Lord there in Canaan. But instead of going to Hebron, he stops about 50 miles short in a city uh, called Shechem, making his way there by way of Sokoth. And the problem with Shechem is that it was a extraordinarily evil Canaanite city. And uh, Jacob doesn't just uh, settle down a little bit in Shechem. He buys land and he's settling in for the long term. The problem with that is its direct disobedience to God's word and God's commandments, direct disobedience to God's plan for his life. And, um, the, in, and he's going to pay a price for this. His family's going to pay a tremendous price for his disobedience. There is no safer place in the world than the place that God has called us to be. Not uh, 10 miles short, not 50 miles short of it, not 100 miles short of it but right in the middle of what God has called us to be and where He wants us to be for His plan on, on our lives. And because of His decision here and His disobedience, uh, all kinds of problems begin to unfold, and that begins now in chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Dinah is probably about uh, 14 or 15 years old, uh, at this time, she is completely innocent in what it is that she does to go out and see what do people live like here in Shechem and in this part of, of, of Canaan. Uh, so there's no evil intent on, on her part, just natural curiosity related to her surroundings, and she is completely ignorant of the danger that she is walking into. And when Shechem, who was the son of Hamor the Hivite, who was the king over the Canaanites in that particular area 
of Canaan, his son by the name of Shechem, prince of the country, saw her. He took her, lay with her, and violated her. And the word violated in the Hebrew, it means to afflict, it means to oppress. In essence, he raped her. And uh, again, this is not her fault. This is an action uh, that he did, but it seemed to be kind of a customary practice. That's where the Canaanites were at this time. That's how low and how base the conduct was. And uh, he just was doing what people would do in power in that culture. You took what you wanted and then you kind of tried to fix things afterwards. Now, he didn't uh, merely uh, rape her here and violate her in that way and, and, and then throw her off. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. When, he, when it says he spoke kindly, he spoke from his heart. So he, he feels love as much as he knows how to feel love and, uh, and, uh, and is kind of head over heels related to her. And so Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, give me this young woman as a wife. And so he wants the arrangements to be made uh, in, in that culture. These this, uh, arrangements were made by the parents, instructs his um, father to move in that direction. And Jacob heard that uh, he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. She's been defiled uh, to be raped at that time in human history and in that culture would essentially, uh, you know, end her chances uh, forever being married. And Jacob now hears about this, what's happened to his daughter, and his sons were, were with his livestock in the field, and so Jacob held his peace until they came. And then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to uh, uh, Jacob to speak with him, again to make arrangements uh, and, and seek his giving of Dinah uh, in marriage to his son Shechem. And then the sons of Jacob, the eleven brothers of Dinah, they came in from the field when they heard it. And so news of this gets out to them in the field, they're tending flocks, that's why uh, Jacob settled in the area of Shechem. It was better for raising flocks, not for raising children, but for raising flocks than, than Hebron uh, would have been. But Hebron was a better place to raise children. And the men, the brothers, were very grieved. And, and the word grieved means they were pained with anger. I mean, this was like somebody stuck a sword uh, through them when they heard this news. And they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which, not, uh, which ought not to have been done. They viewed it as a sin against their sister, a violation against their sister. They also viewed it in that Middle Eastern culture and in all as a violation against the family. This man has done an act of violence not only against our sister, but he has done an act of violence against us as her guardians, as those who view the weaker members of the household as, as being supposed to be protected uh, by us. And so they take this very, very personally. But Hamor, I mean, he's oblivious to all of this. He spoke with them saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as wife. 
And then verse 9, incredibly, and make marriages with us, give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves so that you shall dwell with us. The land shall be before you, dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourself in it. And so he proposes not only uh, the marriage of Dinah to his son, but then that the two groups, the descendants of Jacob, would now intermingle with the, with the men of Shechem, with the Canaanites. And, uh, and, and that's the, the thing that he proposes now uh, to them. And then, um, verse 11, Then Shechem said to her father, and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. And ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as wife. Again, on the basis of the culture, uh, where it was, I mean, this is uh, abhorrent uh, to us, but he is, uh, in his eyes, uh, doing something noble and doing something right. That's, uh, isn't it wonderful to have the Word of God that keeps the standard high uh, in, in our lives and, and even within, within our, our, our nation? But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, and they spoke deceitfully because he had defiled their sister. So something uh, terrible happens here. And you notice there in verse 13, the sons of Jacob, they begin now uh, to speak up. And it uh, wasn't their place. It wasn't their place. But they jump in and they begin to negotiate in this situation and they begin to deal with this situation because their father Jacob fails to take charge of the family. That was his place. Everybody was waiting for him to step in and do the right thing here in, in all of this. He fails to take charge of the situation. He fails to lead his family in the situation. They desperately needed dad to step up and be the dad in this situation, but he doesn't do it. And when dad fails to do that, in a situation like this, or to lead in a family, you can be sure that the children are going to take over, and that's exactly what they do. So he does nothing in the situation. They step up, but they step up now with a youthful anger, with an ungodly anger, and they're going to make things even worse because they're not up to the task. Jacob should have stepped up. It is amazing, as they're going to propose in just a moment, to accept the offer of Hamor to intermarry the two groups. They're going to say, we can't intermarry you without you being circumcised, the men. But if you circumcise, we will intermarry. And you know what is so shocking about the whole thing is, is that when they make that proposal, Jacob doesn't say a word. He doesn't say a word. He is the patriarch of, the mo of one of the patriarchs of one of the single most incredible bloodline in human history. The bloodline that God has chosen to bring the Messiah and the Savior into the world through. And Hamor, a leader of a 
little kind of kingdom in Canaan headed in Shechem makes an offer for all of them to intermingle and essentially with the desire that the Jews would be absorbed by the Canaanites like others had been absorbed by the Canaanites and Jacob doesn't make a peep. He ought to have jumped up and shouted in a righteous indignation at the top of his lungs that that'll happen over my dead body. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. He fails to lead his family here. And so they jump in, and now they're going to take and deceive the people of Shechem. And what these sons do of Jacob, they are wrong, wrong, wrong. And what they're about to do goes way beyond exacting uh, justice into the situation. They're going to take and, and slaughter so many innocent lives here and, and all. And, uh, but that's as they, they just move in, again, as I said, in that, that anger that, uh, that is a fleshly anger. So they, they said to Shechem and Hamor, his father, and spoke deceitfully. So this whole thing's a lie. It's a deception. We're not, as Christians, we're not called to, to deceive. Not the good, not the bad, not the ugly. That's not how God works. But they're, they're going to head into a deception now because he had defiled Dinah, their daughter. And that's, that they're going to hide behind that as, as a reason. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. For that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. No peep from Jacob. He is, just, he is so out of it right now in, in failing to, to lead his his family. And there's a reason for it, which we're going to get to in, in, in just a, a, a little bit. I mean, this is a father being I mean, passive to a, a, a sinful uh, fault here. And then we'll become one people, but if you will not heed us and be uh, circumcised, then we will take our daughter and, and be gone. Well, they, Hamor and Shechem, they like the offer that's been made, and so the young man did not delay to do this thing. He was immediately uh, circumcised, Shechem was, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter, and he was more honorable than all of the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came then to the gate uh, of their city, and uh, they spoke to the men of the, their city. So they've kind of made this agreement now with the descendants of, of Jacob. Uh, could be a hard sell. Could be a hard sell. On, uh, on the city. Listen, guys, got some good news, got some bad news. And uh, could really make some money off this thing, but you're all going to have to be circumcised. And, and so they came to the gate of their city. Uh, all of the men of the city came out there, and they spoke to them, saying, These men are at peace with us, and therefore let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed the land is large enough for them, and let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. 
So he puts the bad news first, but now he's going to try and, and sell the proposition here. He's very much a politician on things. And so here's the upside. Here's the good news and in, in, in that we'll absorb all of their wealth. Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. In other words, we will simply absorb them into us. They will disappear as a people. Unbelievably dangerous what is going on right now. And so it's going to take God to jump in here and, 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 and protect his, his plan of salvation. And all who went out of the gate of the city heeded. They liked the fact that there was a, a money gain on this whole thing. They heeded Hamor and Shechem, his son. Every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. So they're all circumcised on that day um, and rather primitive conditions. So we're not talking about uh, a, a shining sterile hospital in those days with, you know, sterile, sharpest, you know, scalpels known to man kind of things, computerized sharpening and all. We're talking about sharp rocks uh, with people that this was a new thing to and all. And, uh, and so this is the, the circumcision that, that goes forth among uh, the people. Well, as you might imagine, uh, when the cuts aren't quite so clean, uh, there's a potential for, how shall we say, inflammation, uh, for infection, uh, certainly for great pain. And uh, so here they are, largely all of the men now, incapacitated uh, by this, this uh, surgery, and at, at the very least, not at their fullest strength. Let's just leave it there. Now, it came to pass on the third day. So the brothers, they're very, very crafty. They wait until the third day when everything is fully inflamed and on its way to infection. When they were in pain, that the two brothers of, uh, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers. It's interesting. These two brothers were, the, were full brothers of Dinah. They both came from Leah, came from the same, same mother. And so they're going to take an exact revenge now uh, upon their sister being dishonored. And each took his sword and came boldly into the city and killed all of the males. That is so wrong. That is so wrong. The wrath of man, the Bible says, does not produce the righteousness of God. There was one man who sinned against their family. There was one man that they ought to have taken their justice as they would define it and to bring it against, and that was Shechem. But to kill every single male adult in that city in exacting revenge was just off of the graph, just wrong. I mean, they killed women's husbands, children's fathers, uh, uncles, friends, grandfathers. They just went in and slaughtered everybody. It's indefensible, indefensible, completely wrong in, in what it is that, that they, they did there. And then they killed Hamar and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. And so Jacob has even allowed Dinah to go for the three days and to be in the house with Shechem. And uh, though he, he couldn't be up to anything sexual, 
uh, for those, those three days. And so they take her out, and then notice verse 27, the sons of Jacob. Now here come the other nine sons. They come, join their two brothers, they come upon the slain, they plunder the city because their sister had been defiled. And so the rest of them, the two of them are just cold-blooded murderers, and then the rest of them just become common thieves. I mean, it is terrible what is happening in Jacob's family because he will not lead it because he will not be the man he's supposed to be in that family and so they took their sheep the oxen their donkeys what was in the city and what was in the field and all their wealth all their little ones and their wives they took captive excuse me and they plundered even all that was in the houses and then Jacob when he hears about this Here's what he says to Simeon and Levi. You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. When Jacob rises up now, Uh, Not to rebuke Shechem or to rebuke Hamar. He rebukes his sons in, in all of this. And his rebuke is so weak because he doesn't rebuke them for their murder. He doesn't rebuke them for their becoming common thieves. In fact, uncommon thieves. Though a part of claiming to know the true and the living God. His whole concern is is that they have put his life in danger and that when the surrounding peoples find out about what they're going to do, they're going to come in and wipe him out and wipe his his family out. His only concern is that they have put the family's safety in, in jeopardy. Now, what is happening here? And, and we move on here to verse 31. Notice their response to their father. They said, should he... That is Shechem, treat our sister like a harlot. Now, we read that, and we are so used to rebellion, so used to a lack of respect for authority in our culture in general, that it doesn't shock us. But for these sons in that patriarchal society to, number one, rise up and commit this act without not only their father's approval, but even their father's knowledge. I mean, that is, that was, in that culture, that would be unbelievable for anyone to think about. Because that would not only be an affront in terms of what they're doing wrong, that was an affront to what everybody realized. That is the father's decision. You don't just make decisions that represent the whole family independent of the knowledge and approval of the father. What they have done is shocking in the culture. And then when he confronts them on it, even on the lamest of of basis, they just throw it back in his face and said, you didn't do anything about it, and at least we did something something about it and and you just didn't do that in that culture you wouldn't respond to the rebuke of the patriarch the rebuke of of the father in in that that situation and so they dismiss his rebuke completely and all of this reveals that Jacob is now leading a family 
that is spinning completely out of control. Jacob has lost complete control of his family. He has lost complete control of the most important family alive at that time in, in human history. The family that is destined to bring the Messiah, the Savior, into the world. Dinah is raped. Simeon and Levi are murderers. The rest of them, lowly thieves. They've got strange gods in, in their midst. And uh, they're drifting from God's purposes for the bloodline. And instead of being a blessing to the nations, they're killing the other nations. God's reputation is being spoiled. Jacob is not leading in his home. His children are in open rebellion against his authority. It's a mess at that moment in time. So what does a father do? What does a father do when he finds himself in that kind of a situation where the whole thing looks like a loss at this moment in time? And what a father needs to do at a time like that is exactly what God calls Jacob to do at that time. He calls him to go back to Bethel. And then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. God looks at the whole thing and he sees it exactly for what it is. And his counsel, and it is wonderful counsel, if I could just forever have it burn into every one of our minds so that it's there by the Holy Spirit for every time the Holy Spirit wants to bring it to our remembrance. Maybe not in a situation as, as deteriorated or, or as this one or as graphic as this one, but always that the Lord would be able to speak to us from the Word and say, go back to Bethel whenever he needs to. And God gives him the command, you go back to Bethel. And what is the significance of Bethel? It's where Jacob first met God 30 years earlier. When he made his way from the land of Canaan and headed off toward Padan Aram uh, because of the problems with, in his family and Esau threatening his life and all, and as he was making his way from Canaan off into Mesopotamia, God met with him one night He's so tired from his journey, he puts his head down on a stone for a pillow, and God gives him this vision right there associated with his life. And he sees a ladder that reaches all the way into the heavens from the earth and angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And God is at the top of the ladder directing all of this heavenly activity into the human condition. And God revealed himself at that time on that night to Jacob and on that night as Jacob wakes up the next morning he commits his life to the Lord and what God is doing with Jacob here is calling him to come back Jacob come back to where you met me first come back to the place you were in personally when you first committed your life to me back when things were simple and things were clear and things were pure back when you only had a staff in your hand and your lonesome self and God's promises now you've got a family you've got flocks you've got prosperity but you've drifted from a simple obedient walk in relationship with me 
So God is just saying, you come back to me now, the mess that you're in. You come back to me, come back to being as close to me as you were at the beginning. It's very similar to what God spoke, Jesus spoke to the church at Ephesus. When he wrote to the seven churches in Revelation, and he spoke to them about returning to their first love. Come back to that first love relationship with him. It's a funny thing that happens as we walk with the Lord for a while, and, and uh, sometimes it can happen. And, uh, you know, there's something wonderful about walking with the Lord for a long time. There's a lot of things that are wonderful about it. And uh, we learn a lot of things. And we have the potential to grow deeper and deeper in our relationship with the Lord and our service to the Lord. And sometimes we can look back to those, those early day or those early days related to it and say, you know, that's what I was back then, but I'm so much more mature now and so much further along than I am now and, and all of, uh, than I was then. And, and, uh, and so that's, that's something that's inferior to what, what I'm doing now. And yet... God continually brings people back to those early days in a call to repentance. Because the thing that's beautiful to God about the early days of a serious commitment to Him is, is that maybe we don't, didn't know as much as we know now, but the commitment was whole. The commitment was complete. The desire to obey Him 100% was there to do whatever he would say when he would say it and and all of that and then God brings this great life out of that obedience and then the great life that he brings out of that obedience becomes a threat to the thing that brought the blessings into our life and so he brings them brings us back to the simplicity you think you're way further along about all this and everything. You were better off when you first got saved. And it was time for him to draw close to God again. And so notice what Jacob does. And it's beautiful. He finally takes charge of his family. And the interesting thing is here in chapter 35, he takes charge of his family in a way that he never has before. It's never too late to do that. It's never too late to do that, to come in and say, I can't make a difference over what I've been, what's in my rearview mirror, but I can make a difference about what I am right now and what's in the future for my family. And he does that. And so he takes and he says to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments. And he issues a call to his family that is a vital call to his family at this time in their history, and that is a call to holiness. And he tells them, put away your foreign gods. Get rid of everything that any of you are worshiping in this house and under my roof and in this camp that it, it does not have to do with the worship of the true and the living gods. And there were a lot of false gods that had been introduced into Jacob's home and, and the, the statues and all Laban's household gods that remember Rachel had hidden under the saddle in the tent. No record that he had ever dealt with that, with those household idols being removed from the family. And now he takes a stand and says, let's get rid of it. Idolatry is the worship of any created thing. And, and what that, you got, that's one category. And then, 
everything, that's everything, and then there's only one other category in all of the universe, and it's a category of one, and that is God. You've got God, and then you've got the creation. And so to, idolatry is the worship of, of any created thing. And it can be material things, uh, it can be a title, it can be power, it can be money, uh, it can be people, it can be relationships, it can be sin. It is anything that I love and invest my life into more than I, I invest it into God. Anything that has stolen my heart from God. And apparently, and this is sad, apparently Jacob up to this point is very well aware that there is a tremendous influence of idolatry in his home, but he's never risen up and taken a stand against it. He knows his whole family is filled with it. But finally now, he makes the stand and, and, and says, now let's get rid of it. And in the past he's overlooked it, and maybe he's made excuses for it. Maybe he didn't want to fight with them over all of the ungodly music that was playing in, in their tents, all of the posters of the half-clad boys and girls stuck up on their bedrooms, or all of the idols of the world that if the children give themselves to, will lead them far, far, far away from God. And it's not worth the battle, it's not worth the fight, it's not worth all, all of this, and we seem to be doing okay with it, and then all of the entertainment that can be in the house, and the video games, and the movies, and all of these things. And finally, he stands up and he puts a stop to it. And he says, we're not going to worship anything that the world worships anymore my house is not going to be about that anymore this house and this family is going to be about worshiping the Lord I'm not going to allow it anymore he calls on them to put away the foreign gods and he calls on them to purify themselves we're not going to live a life like the world anymore the world worships God it worships God's there's a whole demonic realm that is as real as the seats you're sitting in and the pulpit that I'm standing behind. It's, it's being worshipped. Things are being worshipped in this world. And he just looks at, at, at all of it and he in essence says, I don't care what the world is worshipping, I don't care what the world is giving themselves to, we are not like everyone else, we know God, we have His promises, and, we, and He has plans for us and our family, and that's what we're going to give ourselves to. And He, and he calls for purification of their lives and of their families. And then a call to change their garments, to change their appearance. We're not going to dress like the world anymore. We're not going to dress like those that worship other gods. We're going to make a commitment to dress in a way that honors the God that we worship, that speaks of the holiness of the God that we worship. They worship other gods. They can dress in accordance with the moral standard of their other gods. We do not worship those gods, so we dress differently because of that. And he just cleans house. 
And he informs the family, we are going to make a fresh commitment to God. In fact, we're going to make a commitment to God that we have never made in our family's history. A commitment that we have never known as a family. And he does that. And then, let us arise, he said, and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. And so he calls them now, informs them that we're going to Bethel. And then it's beautiful, the obedience of their family. They were waiting for him to take this lead. It doesn't mean that there isn't a tussle and, and all and, and reestablishing control of a family. But here they were waiting for his leading. And they gave Jacob all of the foreign gods, plural, that were in their hands. So many false things being worshipped right there under the tents that God had provided for them as a family. And the earrings, and the earrings speak not of earrings for decoration and all, but earrings that were associated with the worship of different gods having symbols on them. And, and, and they were earrings that spoke of, of the different gods and the idols that were being worshipped. The earrings in their ears, and then Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which is by Shechem. And he buries them. He takes all of that junk and he buries them. And burial, it speaks of death. And what Jacob wants this to be is a reference point for his family. And when he buries all this junk, he is communicating, that's it, that's over, that's done with. And it's very, very instructive that he buries all of that junk under a tree. Because the Bible teaches that we're to leave all of our idolatry and all of our impurity and all of our worldliness behind at the greater tree of Calvary. Jesus said, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. Jesus never talked and said, listen, you can come. I, I know how to make things easy for you. I know how to allow you to have one foot in the world and then one foot in following me. I know how to do a 60-40, a 50-50, a 70-30. We can work this thing out as long as, as you'll pretend to follow me. He never did that. Jesus was not desperate for people to follow him. If nobody followed him and he was obedient to the Father's will, he's fine with that. He never lowered the standard to increase the numbers. And he just lays it out. You want to follow me? This is what it takes. You've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's not the easiest life for a person to live in this world, but it's the best life that a person can, can live. And so they bury it. Good riddance. We're, we're done with that. We've made a sta stand as a family. Now we're going to move forward in a way that we never have before. And they journeyed, and the terror of the Lord uh, God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So here he makes this stand with his family. He does the right thing. And then now uh, he's had this concern that all of these other tribes are going to come and wipe them out when they hear about what they had done to Shechem. And now that he's repented, 
He's done the right thing related to his family and all. God rises up now and supernaturally protects them against attack. And so once again we see God, how he has protected his bloodline, his plan of salvation all the way through history in order that you and I might have a Savior and that we might have a Messiah tonight. The Bible says that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these other things will be added to us. So he gets right with God. He makes things right with God. God starts to take care of the details that Jacob has no control over. And so Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him uh, when he fled from the face uh, of his brother. And so he takes and, and goes there, makes that commitment, and it was very, very important that he make that commitment to now walk close with God, to walk in obedience to God. And what Jacob doesn't know, and only God knows, and it's true of all of us, because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, but God knows what tomorrow is going to bring. And God knew some difficult things were going to come into Jacob's life and that Jacob needed to be fully on board with the Lord right in his relationship with the Lord as we talk about because right around the corner his beloved wife Rachel is going to die Reuben is going to sin against him his father Isaac is going to die and, and one of the hardest things to watch in all of life is to watch someone who confesses Christ and even knows Christ, but they're walking far away from Him, and then to watch the, some crisis in their life or crisis in their family explode on the scene in one hour. Nobody saw it coming. And then now in the middle of the crisis, that person is not only having to try to deal with the crisis of, of life in this fallen world, but they are trying to now play catch-up in their relationship with the Lord because they know for days or weeks or months or years they have not been close to God. You know, one of the most beautiful things, it's been very, very hard. We've had two beautiful saints that fellowship uh, here go on to be with the Lord in the last uh, couple of weeks. I think of Marcel Floor, and he sat right, right back there toward that back row on Sunday mornings. And uh, the kind of guy you just look at and, and instant kind of koinonia and, and fellowship uh, with him. And as he was diagnosed with cancer and, and the treatments and then the cancer moved very aggressively with tremendous speed uh, toward the end of his life. And to sit and to talk with Marcel was to talk with a man who is at peace with God. A man who loved the Lord. A man who uh, was walking close with the Lord. A man who could commit the greater picture to the Lord and, and pray and minister to his family and, and all. And to talk with him about the Lord wasn't to feel kind of a guilt about God and this and, and all of these things. And, and boy, I wish I had done better with this or I was closer to him now or this kind of a thing. To talk with him was, was to hear him talk about his best friend in all the world. I think of Bud Sweeney just this last couple of weeks going to be with the Lord. Same way, 
You'd visit him, talk to, about the Lord, and, and his face would just begin to shine. I mean, it would literally have the glow of heaven upon his, his face. And see, these are, are men, and just like us as men and women, the things come in life. And, and it's so beautiful to see a saint who is right with God before these things come into place so that they can then uh, have God as a friend, as someone to rest in, in the situation. And now Jacob is in this uh, place now where he's, he's ready for what it is that's coming next. Now Deborah, uh, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree and so the name of it was called Alan Bachuth. And then, Jacob, and then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob, heel catcher, supplanter, uh, you know, uh, con man, uh, trip anyone up in front of you kind of a deal. Again, if your name is Jacob, it's been sanctified now. Uh, but he said, your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel, that is governed by God, ruled by God, shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel. And also Jacob said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply um, a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you and to your descendants after you I give you this land. It's so beautiful because this is what God does. Jacob has been so far out in left field. I mean so far out there. But he listens to God's call on his heart to take charge of his own life and charge of his family and to begin to lead that family in a way that God wants the head of a household to lead a family. And when Jacob takes that step now to obey the Lord in that, God comes in right behind it and then reconfirms that his plan for Jacob and his family is still in place. The promises are still there. And the thing that I love about this is that it teaches us what we need to know all of the time about God. Not, not so that we use it as an excuse to sin, but as an encouragement in our hearts tonight, if we're not where we need to be with the Lord tonight. And that is, when we repent and we turn back to God and take seriously His call upon our lives, God is a God of second chances. And He now gives Jacob now a second chance, reconfirms the same promises and says, now let's get on with what I've called you to do and called you to be. I think Jacob probably had to wonder in the midst of all of this whether the rug had been yanked out from under him on this. 
as he realizes how far he's been from what he ought to have been and all. And once you start to get things in order, sometimes it can even be harder because you realize how out of order they've been. And once you begin to draw closer and closer to God and closer in that relationship and closer in holiness, it can even be hard because you realize how unholy we were, how far from God we were. And then God comes in with this encouragement and says, I haven't given up on you. We're still going to do what it is that I've, I've determined to do through your life. And I hope that's an encouragement to some of our hearts today. Do the right thing. Make the hard decisions. Lead the family. But realize that it's not too late to do that and move forward in God's will for our lives. And then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. And so Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And they would set up these pillars and do this kind of thing whenever they wanted to kind of commemorate an event. They wanted to, uh, to remember this situation. I've made uh, something wonderful has happened between God and I, and, and I want to remember it with this, this memorial. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. It was good to go back to Bethel. And they journeyed from Bethlehem, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, uh, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. And so she's gone into some very difficult labor. She is pregnant. Remember when she had Joseph, she named uh, her only son, she named him uh, Joseph, which means to add in the prayer and in the hopes that she would have another child. And so she's now become pregnant and, and she is in labor now to deliver that child. And now it came to pass when she was in hard labor, uh, this is a very difficult labor that's going on, that the midwife said to her, do not fear, you will have this son also. God has answered your prayer. You have another boy coming to add now uh, to Joseph who is is born and uh, so the boy is born now and so it was enough to see that it was a boy as her soul was departing because she dies now in childbirth that she called his name uh, Ben-Onai but his father called him Benjamin and so she called out a name kind of with her final breath related to the the boy called him uh, Ben-Onai and which means a son of my sorrow and uh, uh, his, uh, Jacob is not going to let that uh, uh, stand. But Jacob, uh, but his father called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. He didn't want that boy who had lived. Uh, the mother had died in the childbirth. His, the wife that he loved from the very beginning. Very, very hard on Jacob here at this time in his life. Good to be close with God at a time like this. And being close with God doesn't mean we won't have problems in life. And we won't experience sorrow in life. And, and so he looks and says, I don't want that boy to carry uh, his name to be associated with the death of his mother at the time of, of birth. And I want it to be his name to be associated with something good, that he was an answer to his mother's prayer and the name of his older brother, uh, Joseph, that another son would come forth in, in uh, their old age. And so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is uh, Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave 
which is a pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. And then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent uh, toward the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben, who was Jacob's oldest son, went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, in Israel. That is, Jacob heard about it. This um, thing that... Uh, uh, Reuben does here. Bilhah was one of the concubines or one of the, his wives, you know, that came, kind of came along with uh, Leah and, and Rachel. Reuben goes in with her and is uh, sexually intimate with her. Now that would be no small thing, even if that happened today in what is a very immoral culture that we live in. And, and, but for him to do that in that day, in the moral climate of, of that family, I mean, it, it, it either represents a, an astonishing lack of wisdom or it represents uh, that he was trying to take over leadership of the family. And uh, you remember when Solomon took and led the rebellion against King David that uh, as he came into Jerusalem and King David had left several concubines in the city that, uh, I mean, uh, I mean uh, uh, um, uh, um, no, don't, don't help me here. Um, help me. Absalom, there we go. All right. Absalom goes in, not Solomon. <laughs> and uh, he has his own problems, but he didn't have that one. So Absalom goes in, lays with the concubines. See, you did know. This is terrific. So he goes, lays with the concubines, and it was a demonstration to the entire country that I have taken over my father's place. I have conquered what once belonged only to him. And, and so people look at this and say, this is just a, a terrible loss of self-control, or it's a power play. I don't think it's a power play at all. And the reason I don't believe that is because uh, Jacob will not forget this. He will bring it up on his deathbed. He will also bring up the violence of Shechem uh, up uh, to the two of his sons that led that violence on, on his deathbed. But when he speaks to uh, Reuben on his deathbed, he declares him to be as unstable as water. It wasn't selfish ambition on his part. It was just... He, he, he was unstable as, uh, to lead the family, unstable in terms of self-discipline and, and all. Couldn't keep his sexual desires in check, and it ends up uh, costing him the birthright. Now, the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah were Reuben, and they're listed now according to their mother, uh, mothers. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpha, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. And so now he's there with his family. And the days of Isaac were 180 years. And so Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his son Esau and Jacob buried him 
there. And uh, so interesting, here is Isaac. He lives to 180 years old. You remember, he thought he was going to die clear back in chapter 27, verse 2. And instead, he lives on for another 43 years. Honey, I'm going to die today. I'm telling you, this will be the day I die. And uh, this is a new ache I've never had before and, and all. And so he, was a, uh, he had a long process of, of death on things. And the beautiful thing is, is, is his uh, two sons, Esau and Jacob, they joined together again uh, as civil to one another and more than civil in order for the, the bearing of, of their father. Chapter 36, just a couple of things to say about it. We won't read through it. I will give you the distinct pleasure of going home and uh, maybe having a bowl of cereal or something, uh, sitting down, a nice cup of tea or something, and then reading through the names uh, together as a family. Uh, but... Um, <laughs> You'll do as good as I, I can do. Absalom is Absalom. Don't forget that. Anyway, so what we have in chapter 36 is, is described in verse 1. Now, this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. And so that's really the point of the whole passage. God is now going to leave Esau, uh, Jacob's brother, kind of behind historically. The focus of the, the whole narrative of the Bible is going to fo uh, focus on Jacob because it's to him the promises have been given related to the coming Messiah. But before uh, Esau is kind of uh, laid to rest in, in, in terms of, of the account, uh, God lays out all of his genealogies and so that we could uh, know a little bit about him. Esau was the father of the Edomites uh, that the, the, the we're going to read about for the rest of the Old Testament. And they ultimately settled down to the south, southeast of the Dead Sea, became their own people. All of this was in fulfillment of what God had spoken uh, to Rebekah and to Isaac when she was pregnant with the twins, Esau and, and Jacob, and said with a difficulty they're fighting in her womb, and the Lord told her there are two peoples in your, wombs, or in your womb, there are two nations in your womb. And sure enough, as God had prophesied and told her would be the case, you have the Jews and the Israelites now descending from uh, Jacob, the Edomites from Esau, two entirely different groups of people now being identified in the Scriptures, God had promised uh, in the prophecy that God had, that um, Isaac had spoken over Esau, though he had not received the, the high blessing that Jacob did, nor the birthright. Remember when he said, don't you have even one more? You only got one blessing, Dad? Don't you have a, a second blessing for me? And his father prophesied over him how his dwelling would be the fatness of the earth and the dew of heaven from above and all, that he would prosper in his own right. He just didn't have the spiritual character to be about what God was going to do through Jacob, and, uh, uh, which says a lot, doesn't it? And, uh, but but uh, so that, uh, the, the fulfillment of all of that is recorded there in chapter 36. Let's stand together and we'll pick it up. Chapter 37, Lord willing, next week, and we'll be able to hit, uh, you know, Joseph who comes next uh, right from, from the start and head into his life.